0: Welcome to church. Uh, My name's Cody. I'm the senior pastor here at South Shore Baptist. Thanks for joining us. If you're cold, there's still a little bit of space over in the direct sunlight. Just feel free to shift yourself over there. Uh, Otherwise, uh, if you've got your Bible with you, that might provide some warmth as well. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Romans? We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 today. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, I want to encourage you to grab one of those black Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. And if you're new to the Bible, you will find Romans chapter 1 on page 997. Uh, Today we're beginning a new journey in the book of Romans. We have all of 2022 mapped out so that uh, we will... Uh, cover the book of Romans from start to finish in this calendar year. Every Sunday won't be a Roman Sunday. This summer we're going to spend some time in the Psalms of Ascent, Uh, but uh, the majority of our time together is going to be uh, walking through the book of Romans. And why is that? Well, one, it's an incredible piece of literature. Two, it's perhaps arguably uh, one of the most influential books in all of Christendom. Uh, Three, it's going to speak directly to so many issues in our lives, uh, just as individual followers of Christ, and especially as a church. Fourth, I think every Christian deserves the privilege of hearing the book of Romans preached all the way through in their lifetime. And so I'm excited about the journey ahead. It's going to be incredible. I want to encourage you as often as you can, join us, worship with us, be in the Word with us. Uh, It's going to be a special experience together. Uh, The year was A.D. 57. A.D. 57, a woman named Phoebe entered the city limits of Rome. Her journey began in the Greek city of Corinth. She has traveled over land and sea over 600 miles on this journey. If she averaged 20 miles a day without any breaks at all, her trip took her at least 30 days one way. She's made this journey from Corinth to Rome in order to deliver a letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christians who are in the city of Rome. There was no mail service the way you and I think of mail service in the first century Roman Empire. You had to secure your own delivery person for your long-distance letters And Phoebe was that person. She was a Christian woman, a leader among Christians in Corinth, and Paul's chosen person to deliver this letter to Rome. And what did Phoebe find when she stepped foot into Rome? Well, the Roman Empire was a vast empire it was unrivaled as the world power at this time let me show you a map of the roman empire its borders stretched from portugal in the northwest up to england all the way around the mediterranean sea to modern day morocco in northwest africa rome ruled her empire with an iron fist this period of, his- of history is known as the pax romana or the roman peace But the reason there was Roman peace was because of Roman swords. Roman rule was merciless. Uh, One example of their brutal uh, regime uh, happened in a town called Volandum. Uh, Volandum was a town that revolted at one point against Roman rule. And a roman general named corbulo was sent to restore order an ancient historian wrote that when corbulo's large army invaded the town of Volandum, they killed every adult in the town and then they auctioned off as slaves all those who survived presumably only the children the army then moved from there to the neighboring town of arishada and the residents of arishada welcomed the roman soldiers They could see the smoldering ruins of their neighbor town on the horizon. They offered the soldiers anything they wanted just as long as they could survive. But however, due to their proximity to the rebel population of Valenum, the city was burned and leveled to the ground. This was not an uncommon occurrence. This was not a one time thing in the history of Roman rule. The stories of Rome's brutality and destruction of its own citizens are not suitable for our gathering this morning. There is a strict social caste in the Roman Empire. Citizens of Rome were at the top of the social ladder. They were the highest ranking, the most privileged members of society. At the bottom of the social system were slaves. In between those citizens and slaves were a variety of freedmen and servants. No one knows exactly how many slaves were in the city of Rome at this time, but the number was significant. So significant that sales tax on the sale of slaves was figured into the empire's budgeting system. Uh, The life of a slave in ancient Rome was a really horrific existence. It was not a nice, polite type of slavery, as some have hypothesized in the past. Uh, The life of a slave was brutal. It often was determined by who your master was and what your appointed work was, But by and large, slaves were the victims of horrific abuse of every kind. Life was exceedingly difficult for everyone in and around the city of Rome. According to scholars, only 7% of people reached the age of 60. About a third of children died before their first birthday, and half of all children died before they reached the age of 5. The city of Rome had a population of nearly a million people at its peak, but the city itself was only eight square miles large. In the city of Rome was a group of Christians. In fact, there were multiple groups of Christians at the time that Phoebe entered the city with Paul's letter. We don't know exactly how Christianity got to Rome. It didn't come from Paul. Didn't come from one of the names that we know. Here's our best clue and our best guess. In Acts chapter 2, during the Jewish pilgrimage festival of Pentecost, we're told that Jewish people from Rome were present in Jerusalem on the day that the Holy Spirit fell and the gospel was proclaimed in the streets of Jerusalem and 3,000 people were added to the church on that day. Roman citizens who were Jewish heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and then returned home. That's our best guess as to how the gospel gets to Rome. It could be those people who were the seed of the Christian church there. Uh, The Christians living in Rome were not influential. They were not powerful people. Now to be sure, we know that there was a mixture of statuses and and economic statuses within the church, uh, but by and large, the population of the Christian church was poor. One scholar wrote this, he said, uh, it's easy to imagine many of Rome's Christians as relatively poor, hardworking people with roots in the east and speaking Greek as well as or better than Latin. Some of them would have tended shops in large apartment blocks owned by a master or patron and slept and kept a few belongings perhaps with their families on a small mezzanine level above their shops or in rooms behind them. These apartment buildings are called insulae. It means islands. They were like a tiny micro-community unto themselves. They were built out of highly flammable materials, wood, mud brick, some concrete. They were just patched together. This was not the glory of Roman architecture. This was rancid landlords just throwing stuff together, three, four stories high. And the poorer you were, the higher you lived in the building. The higher you lived in the building, the less access you had to fresh water, to fresh air, to sunlight, or to safety in case of a fire. This insula, your apartment complex, was your community. You knew everyone who lived there. You were involved in each other's lives. Uh, And this is the type of place where so many Christians in Rome would have lived. The city was filled with the worst of poverty, but it also possessed the most immaculate wealth. There were elaborate temple complexes covered in marble and gold. There was no shortage of gods in Rome, and their glory was seen in the wealth and dominance of the empire. Now, the Christian church in Rome, it had no political power. It had no political voice, didn't have a Supreme Court judge, had no military strength, no prominence, no wealth, but they had everything because they had Jesus Christ. That's what Phoebe found when she arrived in Rome that day. Why did Paul write this letter? I think there's two significant reasons he wrote this letter and sent it all this way to them. The first reason is intensely practical. Paul's planning on visiting Rome on his way to Spain. And so he's preparing the church for his impending visit. He tells them later in this letter, he says, I'm going to go from Corinth to Jerusalem. I have to deliver a gift of money there to the starving church, the famine-stricken church there, and I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to visit in Rome for a while, and I'm on my way to Spain from there. I want you to help me get to Spain. The second reason he writes the letter is far more theological. He wants to address issues within that church by anchoring those believers in the gospel message. He's going to explain in great detail what the gospel is and then explain its implications on the life of the believer. Now, what do I mean when I say gospel message? If you're new to the Bible, this language can be confusing. Sometimes the word gospel is used to describe the first four books of the New Testament, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. But when Paul uses the term gospel in the book of Romans, or when we use it this morning, we're using the term gospel in a different way. Paul isn't speaking of those writings Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but he is speaking of the message of good news that though we are sinners, rebels against God, deserving of his judgment, deserving of death, God has shown us his love by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place for our sin. And he rose from the dead three days after he died, and by faith in him, your sins are forgiven, and eternal life is yours. Every blessing of Christ is yours when you turn your life and put your trust in him. That's the gospel message. It's a simple message in its telling, but it's monumental in its meaning for our lives. The gospel message has radical implications for you and I. And and so, Paul's going to do an in-depth explanation of the gospel and then instruct us how to live in light of it. You see, the gospel message is not just one facet of a multifaceted life. It is the story that explains and shapes every aspect of the Christian's life. All of our relationships, our family life, our work ethic, our rest ethic, our view of the future, our peace and our hope all comes from this gospel story. And why? Why does the gospel have such a claim on our lives? What gives Paul the right to send this letter to a people he has never met, to a church he has never visited, and tell them what to believe and how to live? Isn't that the same question we would ask at the opening of this study as well? Why should we allow this letter, this gospel message, to dictate what we believe and how we live? This letter is written 2,000 years ago. By a man we've never met in a setting and time period so very unlike our own, for an audience so very different from us, why would we allow this letter, this gospel message, to tell us what to believe and how to live? Well, Paul answers that question in the opening lines of this letter to the Romans. His letter opens with a formal greeting. This was standard fare for first century correspondence. But Paul isn't going to waste a drop of ink. Even in his greeting, he grabs the reader by the heart to let us know that the gospel of Jesus Christ has a claim on our lives. And so my goal today as we begin this journey is to convince you to submit yourself to the gospel's claim on your life. And I hope to do that by showing you the unrivaled authority the gospel has over us. The letter to the Romans opens by pointing to five different sources of authority that this message carries with it, that it's an authority that has a claim on our faith and on our lives. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, Called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a greeting. The same as you would start any letter with two simple words, dear so-and-so, this is a greeting. But even here, We come to understand the claim the gospel of Jesus Christ has on our lives. Why would we allow this to guide our lives? Why not live by fortune cookies or horoscopes or magic eight balls or just our own wants and desires? The gospel has unrivaled influence on our lives because of the authority it possesses. And I want to show you five different types of authority the gospel has. If you'll listen fast, I'll talk slow and we'll get there together. So. The first type of authority the gospel has is an apostolic authority. Why would I pattern my life after the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, it's first because of its apostolic authority. So Paul begins this letter by introducing himself to us. He identifies himself by name. He's Paul. We know that he was formerly known as Saul, and in his former life, he was a destroyer of Christians in the Christian church, but one day his life was upended by Jesus Christ. You can learn all about that by listening to last week's sermon from Kevin Cohane. It's on Acts chapter 9 and I highly commend it to you. If you want to get a great understanding of the person of Paul and the work of Christ in his life, listen to Kevin's sermon from Acts chapter 9. So this is Paul. The second thing he tells us of himself is that he's a servant of Christ Jesus. So that word servant, your Bible might translate it slave, which I think is the better of the two choices. It's not that servant's bad, but slave is far more descriptive of what the word means in this context. That word's going to show up several times in this letter, and it's appropriate for the cultural context in which Paul lived and in which the recipients of this letter lived. Many of them were themselves slaves. And although Paul is a Roman citizen, free and privileged in the empire, he identifies himself as a slave of his one and only master, Jesus Christ. Third, he tells us that he's called by Christ as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The word apostle is a title to an office. It's an important title in this setting. The word itself means someone who's an ambassador An envoy, a representative, someone sent as a representative of someone greater. In the biblical sense, apostles are those who are specifically commissioned by Christ to spread the gospel to all nations and given authority from Christ to lead the church. Our faith is a faith that goes through the apostles. Our understanding of who Christ is and what the gospel message is, that understanding comes from the message delivered by the apostles. So when Paul identified himself as an apostle, he's showing his credentials. He's not just Paul the missionary. He's not just Paul, your fellow Christian. Those things are good and influential. He's saying, I am Paul the apostle, commissioned by Christ with authority and a message from God that you as a follower of Christ are bound to obey, to listen to. So why would we allow this letter to inform our faith and lives? Well, because it comes from an apostle. We are followers of this apostolic faith. It would have been vital for the church in Rome to understand Paul's title, his position, and it's vital for us. This is a true and a right message because it comes from one commissioned by Christ himself. The Christian life is a constant pull between suitors who would have us diminish Christ or abandon Him altogether. Why then would we give priority to this voice over every other? It's because it's a gospel that comes to us with apostolic authority. There's a second authority on display here in this uh, passage. The second type of authority is prophetic authority. This has got apostolic authority, The authority that comes from the New Testament, it has prophetic authority and authority that comes from the Old Testament. So in verse 2, Paul says that he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So in the church at Rome, uh, we think the church was predominantly made up of non-Jewish people, Gentile people. But there is absolutely a segment of the population of the church who come from a Jewish background. And so, here in verse 2, Paul speaks to them uh, from a position that they understand. There seems, in the New Testament, there seems to be this constant struggle for Christians who come from Jewish backgrounds in reconciling what they know of the Hebrew Bible with the person and the message of Jesus Christ. And so, Paul speaks directly to that struggle here to help them understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of of Old Testament prophecy. He's not a deviation from prophecy. Jesus doesn't come in and abolish prophecy, but rather he's the one whom Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Micah and others had visions of. God made promises to Israel of old and all of those promises are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So this helps us see that there's a consistency to the gospel message from the beginning of humanity going all the way back to the Garden of Eden to this very day. There's a consistency to the gospel message from Old Testament to New Testament, first page of the Bible to the last page of the Bible. Sometimes we think of the Bible as having two different stories. First, we've got an Old Testament with a cranky God, and then we've got a New Testament with a fluffy God. Uh, But we've got the one same God start to finish. The gospel is not just a New Testament creation. God has always operated under a gospel message. Let me give you one example from the Old Testament. The book of Exodus is the gospel message in miniature. There are two major events that occur in the book of Exodus. The first is the delivery of God's people from slavery in Egypt. That deliverance is the first big happening in the book of Exodus. You remember the story, God gives them a deliverer, gives them Moses, he leads them out of Egypt across the Red Sea on dry ground, God delivers them. The second big thing that happens in Exodus happens at Mount Sinai. They cross the Red Sea, they camp out at Mount Sinai, and there at Mount Sinai, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Here's God's written law so that a sinful man knows how to live in relationship with a holy God. And what do we have in the book of Exodus? We have deliverance followed by demand. We have rescue followed by requirement. God didn't rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt because they earned it through many prayers and much righteousness. Righteousness. We're just told He heard their groaning and He acted. That's the gospel. It's good news that we are given a deliverance we have not earned, we do not deserve. But God is a God of such compassion and love that He rescues us in our brokenness. Rescue before requirement. And that same gospel work is evident ultimately in the person of Christ who loves us though we are sinners by laying down his life for us and then tells us by his word how we are to live with him. So the reason we let the gospel have sway over our lives is because it's the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue us from his sin and to save us for his glory. It has apostolic authority, prophetic authority. Third, it has divine authority. So in verses 3 and 4, Paul describes exactly who Jesus is. In verse 3, he again appeals to the church's Jewish roots by describing Jesus' human lineage. Look at verse 3. He says, this gospel message concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. So that reinforces what David just wrote in verse 2 about Jesus being the fulfillment of prophecy Jesus is a son of David, greater than David, and that's according to the flesh. When he says that phrase, what it's telling us is that this snippet of information is about his, his human life, his physical birth, his taking on flesh and dwelling among us. But that's only according to his flesh. That's not all there is to say about Jesus. And so he continues then in verse 4. Verse 3 is about Jesus in the flesh. Verse 4 is about Jesus according to the spirit of holiness. We have his humanity and his divinity on full display here. In verse 4, he tells us that Jesus was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So what does Paul mean when he says Jesus is appointed the powerful son of God? Well, he's not saying that Jesus had not all, was not already God's son prior to to this point, but rather he's drawing attention to the next phase of Jesus' redeeming work. He's emphasizing Christ's exaltation and his coronation after his death and resurrection. So in other words, in Jesus' earthly life, he was the son of David in a human type of weakness, but after his resurrection, he is the risen and reigning and glorified king. So here Paul's contrasting Christ's humility with his exaltation. So how incredible is it that Here at the beginning of this letter to the Romans, Paul begins with the incarnation of Christ. He begins with Christmas language, and then he moves straight into Easter language. He takes us from a baby born in Bethlehem to a man raised to life in Jerusalem. Jesus is the powerful son of God who took on flesh and became like us in his humanity. He's the powerful son of God who overcame death by his resurrection and is able to deliver salvation and forgiveness to all those who turn to him and trust in him. That message of the gospel is God's message. It's about God's work through God's son for God's people. It comes with divine authority. That would be enough right there. Why should we listen to the gospel? God has given it to us. That's enough. But Paul continues to help us understand the weight of what we're going to read and study. The gospel has apostolic authority, prophetic authority, divine authority. Fourth, it has moral authority. So in verses 5 and 6, Paul speaks of the demand of the gospel message on the lives of those in the Roman church. In other words, the gospel holds authority over their lives and over our lives. It holds moral authority. Look at verse 5. Paul writes, through him, that him is Jesus. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all Gentiles, including you, who are also called by Jesus Christ. So what's the purpose of Paul's ministry? That's what he's laid out here in these verses. He says, we have received grace and apostleship. Who's the we? Well, the we there is Paul and his ministry companions. At this point, he's not including the Roman church in that. He's not saying all of us have been given grace and apostleship. He's saying we, me, my ministry companions, we've been given grace and apostleship by Jesus Christ for a specific purpose. What's the purpose? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all Gentiles, including you in Rome, who are also called by Jesus Christ. So Paul's ministry is to produce an obedience of faith. I take that phrase to mean this, that Paul calls us to believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation and then to walk with him in obedience. It's an obedience that comes from our faith in Christ. So the gospel message, we've got to understand at the very beginning here, is an active force in shaping the believer's life. This is not just some philosophical construct. It does not just live in the world of theological concepts. It is an active shaping force in our lives. The impact of the gospel on us is inescapable. We cannot avoid the change the gospel brings to our lives. There are some things in life that change us inevitably, and this is one of them another example of this, a uh, very random example. My mother-in-law's family is from a small Nebraska town called Kimball, Nebraska. Kimball, Nebraska is in far western Nebraska, extreme rural Nebraska. You've heard people say that they're from the sticks. People from Kimball are from 10 miles past the sticks. They, they don't even have sticks. They have to import their sticks from other places. That's how far beyond the sticks they are. But here's why anyone knows of Kimball, Nebraska. It's because it was chosen by the United States government to be the center town in a network of nuclear missiles. At one point, there were around 200 intercontinental ballistic missiles in silos buried around Kimball, Nebraska, the highest number of nuclear missiles on the planet around that little town. Expendable, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's horrible to think about. But eventually, uh, these are decommissioned, and one of those nuclear missiles was taken and placed as a monument in the city park to commemorate Kimball's place uh, in the world of nuclear warfare. And, and it stood there as this proud memorial to what they knew and seen and had experienced. And then Far too late, much longer than should have, it should have taken, they realized there was an alarming amount of radiation leaking from the nuclear missile in the town park. Mommy, why are all the birds at the park dead? <laughs> why does grandma glow in the dark? Shut up and play on these swings, kid. I, I don't know why it took so long, but eventually they had to take more equipment out of the missile to keep it safe. For people, look, if you play around a nuclear missile, something's going to happen to you. It is unavoidable. And in this very same way, look, it is impossible to come into contact with the God of the universe and walk away unchanged. He changes you distinctly, inevitably. Every cell that you possess is impacted by the love and the goodness of God. God. He doesn't just make you moral compared to immoral. He makes you a new person, a new creation altogether, and that's seen in the way we live our lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ has a moral authority on our lives because it changes us indelibly. The gospel has apostolic authority, prophetic authority, divine authority, moral authority. Finally, the gospel possesses relational authority. Finally, in verse 7, we get to exactly who this letter is addressed to. It is written to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's written to those loved by God. Who are they? They are weak poor, slaves, immigrants, shopkeepers, anonymous, unknown, with short lives. And they are sinners, and they are fleshly, and they are self-serving, self-righteous. They are victims as well as perpetrators. They are deserving of judgment. Paul could have addressed the letter this way, To those who are sinners, to those who have fallen short of the glory of God, but instead he addressed it to those who are loved by God. And what is the love of God like? It's not like our love. Our love is finicky and conditional. Our love keeps score. Our love is given in measured amounts. Our love is easily broken. We dare not liken the love of God to our love. His love for you is infinite in measure. His love is merciful and forgiving and gracious. His love is not based on merit. It aims for the weak The dirty, the broken, the anonymous among us, it is infinite love for finite people. It is a love that invites us in. Come all you who are wounded and frightened and angry and hurt and lonely and empty, and I will meet you where you live, and I will love you as you are, not as you should be because you'll never be as you should be. He loves you. An appeal to authority does not normally warm the heart. Do this because I said so. The IRS has authority. No one loves that. The RMV has authority. You've never felt an ounce of love in your life in the RMV. So this is not Paul just saying, do this because I'm important and God's going to get you if you don't. He says this. Your heavenly Father loves you, and He has abundant life for you, and that's why we want to live this way, and that changes things. When it's authority wrapped in relationship, authority defined by love, it changes things. Can you think of any example in your own life, in your own relationships? of someone who is an authority in your life and they love you and you delight in that relationship? Surely you can. To those loved by God, why would you submit your life to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because you are loved by God and the gospel story is the telling of His love. So here we are just at the opening of Paul's letter And Paul opens with credentials, not so much his own, but rather it's the credentials of the message he is delivering. The gospel comes with apostolic authority, prophetic authority, divine authority, moral authority, and relational authority. It is for those who are loved by God. And and what's the point Why does Paul begin this letter with all this authority wrapped in the love of God? Well, he stated the point in verse 7. He said, you are loved by God and called as saints. Paul uses the word called three different times in these seven verses. Once of himself, twice of his readers. You're called by God. Called to be a saint, look, a saint is not someone who's done something extraordinary, but rather a saint in the biblical sense is one who is in the one who is truly extraordinary. And so as a follower of Jesus, this call is placed on your life. It's the call that saved you when you first put your faith in Him. It's the call that continues as God shows you the depths of His love and His purposes for you. There are times when sin or suffering may dole our willingness to respond to God's call. And so here at the start of Romans, we find God's gracious, loving voice calling us again to follow Him, calling us to an obedience that comes from faith in Christ. What is God calling you to? What is He calling you out of? It can be hard at times to know how to respond to that call, but we have an example elsewhere in the Bible that I think might help us this morning. It comes from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 3, and there we meet young Samuel, and he is literally hearing the voice of God calling his name, but he doesn't know it's the voice of God. It takes some time. He needs a little help before he is instructed, this is God calling to you. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 10, the Lord came, stood there, and called as before, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel responded, speak, for your servant is listening. I think this is the posture we take as we begin our study of Romans. I think it's the posture we take any time we sit with the Word of God open in front of us. And I want to challenge you to make this simple sentence the cornerstone of your praying for the week ahead. Father, speak for your servant is listening. Pray that prayer in the normal places, in the worship places, with your Bible open in front of you and your heart turned to prayer. Speak that prayer in unexpected places, in unexpected times. Pray it with your heart open and your hands and feet ready to move at the call of God. Father, speak, for your servant is listening. And with God calling and us responding, we will then receive the blessing that Paul describes at the end of his greeting, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope you hear his call today. You cannot be loved any more by him than you are at this very moment. I mean, his love for you is so infinite, so great, so mighty, so majestic. You cannot fathom how valuable and precious you are to him. And he calls you. Christ calls you by name. He is the powerful Son of God who loves you and laid down His life for your sin and rose from the dead. Will you answer His call? Will you turn from your life of sin and disappointment and brokenness and trust in Him to save you and heal you? You don't have to. You've got a a voice in this for sure. You can listen to other suitors and they will claim to have better knowledge then the dusty old Bible, they'll claim to have the appeal of the masses, and they just might. They may claim to have planets and stars on their side, or energies, or nature, or spirits, or success, or riches. If you submit your life to them, you will get exactly what they can give, fiction, disappointment, But the God who created all the planets and stars and set their path in the heavens is the God who is calling you out of a kingdom of darkness and into his marvelous light. Answer his call today so that you may know the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for... Its faithful servant, Paul, who gave us this, thank you for the hands and feet of Phoebe, who delivered the letter to Rome. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for preserving your word, so that we would sit with this, sit, we would sit with it this morning and have our, our hearts impacted by it and I pray this morning that we, what we would see here is not just authority in the cold, hard sense, but we would see love, love that led you, Jesus Christ, God the Son, to lower yourself all the way to the cross, a love that through your death has won life for us. So I pray strength and encouragement and hope for my brothers and sisters in the faith. Father, speak, for your church is listening. Let us hear your call and respond in obedience. And Lord, I pray that you would draw near to you this morning anyone in this room, anyone watching online who doesn't know you as their Savior, that they would hear your call, they would say yes, that they would believe what the gospel says, they would live as the gospel says, and they would know the life that they were created for. Father, thank you for so great a salvation as this. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, may we know the call of this gospel of love this morning, and may it compel us to proclaim this gospel, to live it out as a fragrant offering as we go out and scatter this morning. Would you please stand as we sing?